Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to this edition of the Ag Emerge podcast. Today, Larry Kandarian of Kandarian Organic Farms joins us as we have a great conversation about soil and plant management practices, the ones that Larry has adopted over the years to build healthy plants and soils. Larry's journey is evidence that farming is rocket science. Larry may have had farming in his blood, but his path to regenerative agriculture took him through mechanical engineering and aerospace career to flower seed sales and eventually farming failures and ultimately successes. He's seen it all and dedicates himself to the mantra of food is medicine. Today, his farm includes about 200 crops across 125 acres and a flock of sheep and a herd of pigs. Monty draws out a key takeaway from our conversation when Larry said, monoculture, where you're not building anything, is actually agribusiness, not agriculture. Larry's investigative spirit spurs on his constant learning from the soil and plants. Acquire that knowledge first, he says, then get out of the way and see what happens. Join us as we dig in in this conversation. One of the things that we love to do here at the podcast is really explore a bit of your story and what brought you to this spot. And as I was researching and kind of reviewing what all you've been up to, I, of course, ran across the note where we understand that you were a mechanical engineer that worked on a space shuttle and now you're a organic green farmer. (laughs) I love that. I'm always a proponent of go and get some education and do do the things that you want to do and then go be whatever you want to be after that. It goes to show that farming truly is rocket science. It really is. It really is. And there's a lot more to it than people think. It's not as simple as just falling off the turnip truck. That's for sure. For sure. (laughs) Well, and especially as I went through and and listened about just you talking uh, and your wealth of knowledge about the grains that you grow and things. But let me not get the cart ahead of the horse here. Will will you tell us a bit of your story? Yeah, well, I... uh, I was studying mechanical engineering. I have a double major, ag and mechanical engineering. And so uh, I was working on my senior project, and one of my professors, uh, Kenneth Bodger, uh, had three professors with the initials B, and they were really amazing, uh, one in uh, air conditioning and the other in machine design, and, and um, uh, the other one was uh, in dynamics, and he could figure out trajectories of rockets going to the moon and the eraser link on the <laughs> chalkboard. It was just phenomenal. Anyway, <laughs> um, they're, they're all gone now, of course. But uh, so, anyway, I was working on my senior project and one of the Bodgers, uh, Kenneth Bodger, was a nominal partner in Bodger Seed Company in Lompoc and wanted me to come and work over there. And I go, hell, I'm not going to be a farmer. I'm going to be an engineer. So I went and worked in Raytheon in Oxnard and worked on the first space shuttle, uh, working on the computer test set. And we were actually, I shared in, in work on the design of a thing called the UUTI, which is a unit under test instrument, which actually was the predecessor for USB port that we use so aptly today. 
Wow. So it was to get information at the computer test set. So there was a bunch of us that were working on that. I was just one of them. I wasn't the guy. I was just one guy. And so don't make it bigger than it is. But anyway, but, uh, you know, Raytheon was not a good company to work for in those days. This is in 1970, January. And my next door uh, associate, uh, Paul, had designed the lunar rover vehicle that roamed on the moon in 1968 or so. And every Friday they would walk around and hand out pink flips because it was all government contract oriented. This is before Raytheon got smart and made the smart bombs that we used in Gulf War and all that, and they made a bunch of money. But before that, they were struggling and just getting any contract they could. And so I was a young college student thinking, you know, graduate thinking, well, I'm going to change the world. And then when I saw what the world was like, well, I'm going to get the hell out of here. <laughs> so I didn't like being a third story suit. You know, you had to wear a suit every day and on the third floor and all that. And, and I have farming in my veins. I grew up on a farm. And my dad was a raisin farmer. My mother was a dairy farmer and so uh, their family. So, you know, I had that in my DNA already. And so I just uh, ended up after uh, almost a year taking Mr. Bodger's uh, uh, suggestion. And I went to Bodger Seed Company and became assistant manager slash engineer. And at the high point in 1976, the bicentennial of United States, we ended up having 57 ranches with crops from um, surf, which is where Vandenberg launches satellites and, and missiles and all kinds, all kinds of stuff. Um, it has a mole program and all that, uh, all the way out to way past Ballard and Happy Canyon, almost to uh, in, into Santa Inez a bit. So, you know, 30 some mile drive. And so every mile you went was about a degree difference in temperature so we would go from 70 inland uh, by the ocean or even cooler to you know near 100 as we got out there so zinnias and and african marigolds out there and garbanzo beans and stuff like that and in inside we were doing the the sweet peas and the uh the lissoms and things like that so i learned i cut my teeth on how to grow things and and then after six years of that, I just, uh, I was assistant manager slash engineer and the assistant never seemed to get to get erased and me becoming the manager because the guy that was there seemed to stay and stay and stay. And so then I just said, you know, I was 30 by then and feeling my oats and I, I had to get the hell out of here. I can't keep working for people. So I haven't worked for anybody since I was 30. So 45 years I've been working for me. I haven't had a paycheck since then. And I'm, I'm looking for one. Though. <laughs> Just don't get in an argument with your boss. Sometimes that can get a little, a little dicey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that me, myself, and I argument are the pits. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so um, so that, that brought me to farming. And then I moved to the San Joaquin Valley, bought some ranches, and kept expanding. And I think at the height of it, we had probably seven or eight ranches, about 200, 300 acres, and then went through a divorce, and I'll make this short, and, and then ended up um, divesting of some of my properties, I guess that would be the easiest way to say that, um, and then remarried after a couple of years, and uh, my new wife and I decided we wanted to raise our family, and the Central Coast, not in Fresno, where there were all the drive-by shootings, and I would rock my first daughter to sleep outside uh, with the noise of the 
helicopters uh, trying to shine lights on the drive-by shooters. So it wasn't a nice place to be in Fresno, and it probably still isn't. But anyway, uh, I don't want to be there. I, I'm out of there, and I'm not going back ever. Um, so anyway, we looked around, and we were trying to find property to buy, and we went all the way to Santa Barbara and ended up next to the uh, the uh, botanic garden, and we thought, well, that's not a good place to do stuff, to have a garden next to the botanic garden. So then we kept looking. Santa Inez was too expensive, and then we ended up the San Luis Obispo, uh, east of us right now, not very big property, not much water. And then this property showed up and it's 130 acres and, uh, it has good water and it's cooler, but you know, we're not in Los Osos proper. We're four miles out, still under the jurisdiction of the local coastal plain and, and the, uh, coastal commission people, which, uh, kind of bothers me a bit, but anyway, we deal with it. And so, uh, tried to start farming organically and kind of failed and then uh, got a second wind and figured it out and then took me until we bought this property in 99 and took me until right after the crash 2007 to get figured out how to do that and so I was growing some grasses for seed and grains are just grasses and uh, then other flowers for seed in, in the flower seed business but those had all kind of collapsed. And so then I wanted to be in the food business because you can't collapse the food business. People have to eat. So then I started looking into ancient grains and just as a fluke, I guess. And, you know, my heritage is Armenian and Portuguese. And so the Fertile Crescent is near Armenia, uh, Mesopotamia, the cradle of civilizations, Iran, Iran, Iraq, that area between the Tigris and Euphrates. And so well, I started getting... Uh, in love with the uh, farrows and started with einkorn and emmer farrow and ethiopian blue tinge farrow and the later spelt so those are the four farrows and then i've added other things and uh so we have quite a repertoire here and then we grow uh as well um, some herbs and and spices and not not big amounts but some and uh then we do the seeds of all those, and then we also do the grains and then beans and peas and, and uh, uh, the leguminous crops. So the beans and peas and all the legumes are our feeders, and then the grains are the eaters. So the grains have fibrous root systems that eat the nitrogen that the leguminous crops put in. And so, you know, once you get in tune with the soil, and this took a while, believe me. So um, now I understand it quite a bit, and it it's... Uh, awful lot easier so we you know plant in the wintertime uh, lentils and fenugreek and, and peas and things like that that'll take the frost and put the nitrogen in the ground and then uh, come back after uh, April or early May harvest and put grains or in this case we have corn and sorghum right now in those fields and uh, and then we have beans in the other fields following the grains because the grains come off early as well in May, and then I can put a bean in in May. Uh, a lot of times you start, you know, 5th of May, Cinco de Mayo is when you plant beans. So um, that's what we do, and we have all kinds of varieties. The grains don't cross. They can be right next to each other, and if you don't believe me, you, can, you know, look at um, the eastern uh, agricultural colleges that are growing them right next to each other and, and harvesting them, and, and, you know, they're, they're true to type. So uh, the only crosses that happen with grasses, especially wheats, 
is if you do it in vitro, you know, you do it in inside. And, and that's been done recently. Uh, the bread lab at, at Washington State University is working on those and they, they have some perennial wheats that they crossed uh, wheats with wheat grasses that I also grow. And then they do a thing called embryonic rescue where they, the, the, the embryo that's from the fertilization won't go to fruition on the plant. It'll abort because it knows it's something uh, foreign. And so then they put it in a test tube and grow it, and then they can rescue that embryo and get the baby to come to fruition, and now you've got a new variety. And so there's a lot of perennial weeds being developed all over the world, Australia and in the U.K. and, and uh, Russia and also here in the United States. So, um, and it's not really GMO. They just did a crossing of two things that are like crossing a monkey with an elephant. It's not easy. Uh, so, but but anyway, the benefit is that we end up with uh, wheats that are perennial that you don't have to till, so you can get more carbon sequestration. And one of the parents of that is a wheatgrass called Kernza by the Land Institute in Washington. Excuse me, in the, uh, Kansas. And um, well, we have a field of Kernza, but I can't call it that. Otherwise, they like to sue me easily. So uh, I, I just call it perennial wheatgrass, and it's been in for uh, 20 years, and the roots are 30 feet deep, and the soil will take 30 inches of water an hour, which is phenomenal. So, you know, a lot of good things happen when you get roots penetrating soil and get all the microbes and bacteria and all the livestock underneath the ground that, that really makes soil, soil, and not just dirt. So that's the big distinction in regenerative organic farm. We do soil first, and then when we get soil, our terroir then grows us good crops that give you nutrient-dense foods that make your body hum. There. How was that? That is awesome. I think we're going to have a great discussion today. I, everyone that's listening right now, if you're if you're driving down the road, make sure you buckle up because we're going to have some fun. I can tell. Um, we've got we've got lots of different directions we could go here, Larry. And um, one of the things I just want to help backfill the background just a little bit. Talk to me about how your engineering experience has helped and or hurt uh, your approach to farming. I think uh, that would be interesting for folks to hear. Yeah, you know, I in looking back, nobody's asked about the hurt. Uh, I I don't see that it's really hurt. I see that it's helped because, you know, you get an analytical mind and you know how to figure out things. So you make a premise and then you, or hypothesis, and then you try to prove it. And and that's what we do in farming all the time too, with all these different crops that I have. So it's just the ability to to acquire knowledge and not think you know everything already and then get back and get the hell out of the way and see what happens. And so, you know, the uh, we clean our own seed and the, the cleaning process uses every aspect of engineering there is, uh, it, almost including rockets. <laughs> I mean, we, use, do, <laughs> we do use airfoil characteristics to, you know, separate lighter stuff that has different wings and stuff that will fly the hell out of the seed. And so... You know, we, we, we do some stuff with wind, akin to the way ancient people were winnowing in the wind. That's an airfoil characteristic separation. Right. We uh, we recently added an air separator at our farm, too. And uh, it's, uh, 
it's it's interesting. <laughs> I think the rocket science yeah. comes in wanting to have a rocket to blow it up sometimes, but uh, uh, <laughs> it's uh, uh, we, we make it we make the magic happen. So I, one of the things I heard you say in there is that you aren't afraid to hypothesize and try things based on uh, more or less a, a blank sheet approach versus worrying about what hasn't worked in the past or uh, thinking about maybe what the neighbors say or, or those kind of things. You're, you, you come up with a valid idea and it's like, okay, how do I test this? How do I perfect this with that engineering approach? Is that, is that a fair uh, evaluation of, of what you're looking at? Yeah, yes, it is. And generally, you know, I, I like to do perennials. But of course, a lot of the things we grow are annuals, but ideally we would have more perennials. And when you do that, the perennial, the plants all talk to you if you just listen. And so, you know, I speak Latin, which is plant Latin. That helps. So <laughs> you, you know how to do that. Listen to the plants. And, you know, the the first year you plant them, you don't know anything. But the second year, they'll tell you. They'll come up when they're supposed to. And then now you know, aha, so now I know when to plant the seed of this one, not when I did it. And so, you know, you learn. And it's by guess and by golly. But you have to pay attention. You've got two eyes. You, you, When you go visit another farm, what do you do? You steal with your eyes. Well, that's what we do. We just look at the crops and pay attention. And they talk and you listen. Yeah, it's interesting how much you can tell by how the leaves are oriented, what the color is, how they how it blows in the wind. There's just lots of things as you sit there and observe and then, you know, watching for insects and birds and those kind of things. What is the greater um, you know, biomass going on there in that field? Uh tells you a lot about yeah. what's going on with the soil and and the plant and and I, I've always been in a, I'm wondering really who is in charge. And at first I kind of always thought that the soil drove a lot of things, but it's a very connected, the plants telling the soil many things, what to do and what it needs. So it's, um, there's a lot of two way communication going on. Uh, plants aren't always the victim of their circumstances. So, uh, they, they adapt and, and change their circumstances as needed. They just can't walk away. That's the only problem. <laughs> Yeah, where you plant them is where they sit, and that, and then they do the best they can, and they do have a life force, and, you know, they don't want to die, so most plants I've killed, I kill with kindness, you know, overwatering or something, but if you stress them, they're tougher than hell, so it's amazing, um, but yeah, just, just, just pay attention, and then uh, a lot of times when we're planting cover crops, we like to put some rye in, because rye has and this is a really interesting fact that I learned. I didn't know this, but I did learn it, that rye has a million miles of uh, stellate hairs or hairs uh, on the roots that are uh, dripping into the horizon of the soil and making deals with bacteria and fungus underneath there, you know, saying, look, I'll give you one of these if you give me two of those. So those kind of deals. And so we we people say wow you got a lot of weeds and i go i don't see any weeds we've got a lot of companion plants so they're making deals under there you just don't know what kind of deals they're making <laughs> so when you come see my deals i mean it looks weedy and that's okay because the plants all work together and it really helps to build the soil if you do that if you know and, and just all you have to do is think back to the prairies before we took those swords and made plows out of them. I know we're supposed to go the other way and make make <laughs> plowshares out of swords, but I don't even want to plow. So, you know, if you didn't plow the prairie, 
and you look at the prairie, the prairie is a kaleidoscopic thing that changes over time. And so one plant is existing in its time in the sun, and then it sets seed and kind of withers, and another one comes. And so that's what we want to see in, in our soils, too. So we did a kaleidoscopic picture, and we we're thinking about doing that time lapse of the entire farm. You could see the vast changes that occur on an annual cycle. Yeah, you know, the soil and the environment hates status quo. I mean, it's it's always yeah. constantly changing and dynamic, and diversity is your friend, uh, both in plant and animal diversity, um, because that's, yeah. like you said, that's how it functioned beforehand. So, um, yeah. anyway, so talk to us. Uh, you're, you're producing multiple crops and, and multiple times a year. How are you marketing then? You mentioned some is for seed sales, and then are you some direct to consumer? What are what are you? How are you um, on your farm doing the output product of what you create? Yeah, we we started with farmers markets and trying to get into some uh, different uh, distributors and things like that. But the distributors take too much of the pie and don't do anything and. Uh, I got into Whole Foods, and uh, I'm, I'm not in there anymore. I'm not overly uh, enthralled with what they do because they want you to spend a bunch of your time teaching people how to use your product that they can sell and take a bunch of money. So what we do is I do that, and I do it at farmer's markets, and now we're getting a good following. I, I just came back uh, late last night from Santa Monica, leaving at 2.30 in the morning. So it's been a long day yesterday. And uh, we have customers from all over the world, and we have a presence on uh, social media. So, uh, you know, people know me all over the world. They know our label, and then they see the new things coming out, and they get excited. And then I post, I put things on the the uh, legs of the tents. Yesterday, we were talking about millets, for example. And I have four kind of millets there, showing people how they set seed. Da 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 da. And you know, people get jazzed over that because. They have no idea. They just see it in a bag, and they don't know where it came from. So education is the key, and, and with crops like ours, it's, it takes a lot of education. So anyway, we're in about 14 or 18 uh, markets, depending on the week, uh, from Marin County down to San Diego. And um, so, you know, that's our, our main source, but then we're known quite a bit uh, all over the world, as I said, and uh, we operate our uh, online uh, store, uh, and mainly we sell into uh, the United States. We go all the way back to uh, New York and Massachusetts and back in there. But we we currently have an order that's going to go to Bermuda, and we've sent to Hong Kong before, and we sent to Australia and New Zealand so uh, and Canada. So, you know, we do uh, – we, we branch out everywhere. Um and and it, it's a slow go to start because when you start and you open your store, nobody knows who the hell you are or what you have or even they can't pronounce Corson. So, you know, how do I use that if I can't pronounce it? You know, <laughs> can't move, you know. But in, anyway, so it, it takes education. But with time and, and with Instagram and, and LinkedIn and stuff like that, we, you know, tell stories and podcasts like this one are going to be invaluable as well. So. So what kind of feedback then do you get from your customers who are purchasing from you? What what are they telling you about their overall experience, maybe not only with their product, but with the educational component that you're doing too? And and what does that, 
What does that mean to you on a personal basis? Well, it means a lot because typically, I mean, I have repeat customers that that I see that that love our products, and I really love them. And, and kindness, I think, is the best antiviral. So, you know, if you're just kind to people and and are fair, people are generally so very, very good. I mean, the intentions of most of the homo sapiens is is good. There's very few that are not. And so I, I really have good luck, in, especially in the farmer's markets, um, because that's the cream of the people. They're the ones that really are coming there to put good food in their gut. They're not coming there to steal out of your cash box. You know, they're, they're really coming to help uh, and better their families' uh, lives and their health. So uh, it's a it's a really a good experience for me. Santa Monica really feeds to my soul because at times when we used to be able to let people in the tent, now with COVID we can't. Uh, they have to be on the outside picking. Uh, we used to have people from four continents in there sharing love and food and and uh, ideas and uh, amazing things and, you know, dendritically changing the world without borders because there are no borders if you get in the space station or look down. Uh, it's just one big blue marble. So the divisions have been made by people with egos. I'm sorry, I don't mean you get political, but I'll stop there. <laughs> no, no I, I think that's great. As I was listening to you talk in another podcast, you were talking about how you interconnect and you're eyeball to eyeball with people and and not just selling a product. You're talking with them about what your product does, all the different ways that they can use it, working with chefs to introduce it into their... I heard you have a conversation about uh, about six different ways. I think it was you could use a particular grain that you were talking Talking about and so it's key to make those connections, isn't it? And really, I don't want to say use the word benefit. That's how we benefit one another, I guess, by not just educating, but really making those connections. Yeah, and you know, like for example, uh, Jeremy Fox from Tallulah's and a couple other restaurants that he has in LA uses our products, and then you know they post on Instagram and they they tag me, and so people know that hey, guess what? This guy who's world class chef is using. Canadian Organic Farms products, so maybe they're good. And so then they stop and see. And so, you know, I do good for him and he does good by me. And then the world gets bigger for both of us. So that's the way it works. So let's talk a little bit more about the, the soil and the impacts you've seen there with the uh, uh, perennial wheatgrass. Um, you know, you mentioned a 30-inch infiltration rate. Uh, so we've got listeners from uh, various parts of the country, and if you're on blow sand, they're probably thinking, oh, that's no big deal. But uh, let's say, what would you consider typical in, in your part of California there? I, I kind of know what that is, but uh, share with others in a uh, you know conventionally farm, maybe a, you have a, a vineyard close by or a uh, produce grower close by. What What is the typical infiltration rate? And how has your choices in management dramatically differed that? Yeah, so so when you do a monoculture, and that's what I would call uh, even the vegetables, I mean, they, they do some rotation here just because of uh, uh, different diseases in the soil. So they'll grow a celery, which is in the carrot family, and then the lettuce, which is in the daisy family, and, you know, uh, cauliflower, broccoli that's in the cabbage family. So you can move things around to keep the pests underneath the ground minimized, but but still you're growing a monocultural crop. And ours 
there's always something growing with our crop that are weeds of different kinds of uh, genuses and species and, you know, clovers to put nitrogen in the ground and whatever. Um, but the, the, the typical infiltration rate of a piece of property farm to vegetables or vineyard would be less than, than two and a half inches an hour. And yeah. so, you know, we're 12 times that. Yeah, and, and that's only that's because of, of that, all the yeah all those all yeah I know that's generous I mean I, it, it should be somewhere under an inch an hour but, correct but just say you know if it, especially if it's cracking if and that's what we do I mean our soil goes through the cracking cycle where you know in the the end of summer where we're not irrigating the the ground opens it up and because it's uh, night clay which cracks it which you don't want to put on your face it not really good for face masks because your face going to look like the Grand Canyon or something. But but anyway, uh, those cracks will go down 50 inches, and they pull apart, and and the ground kind of rips itself. You know, if you keep it wet all the time like the vegetable guys do, then it doesn't get a chance to, to do that. You know, and and when I'm growing perennials, it helps me because when it pulls apart, it tears out some of those roots that are trying to bridge that gap, they, they break, and then that kind of root prunes the crop, and then it comes back even stronger. So, you know, it, there's certain grasses especially that get kind of, well, for lack of a better word, I would say kind of constipated. They just get really tightened up, and then they'll only produce seed on the edges of the field, so you have to go in and rip the hell out of them so that they're separated from the mother plant, and then they go, okay, now I better try this myself. And, so then they start to bloom and set seed. Uh, many grasses do that. They're pioneering and, and they just uh, take over uh, an area and then only the edges do the blooming. So, um, you know, you have to use strategies uh, other than what is provided there. But, you know, especially if you're intensely farming, then it doesn't work. So we just let the, the soil dry and it cracks everything up. And the next year, you know, they come again. So we have uh, purple needle grass, which Schwarzenegger named as the, the California state grass, um, Stipopulchra, and it's been in 20 years, and it's fine. It comes back every year. We just let the ground crack and comes back with a vengeance. So that's kind of how you do it. So there's, a, you know, the difference between monoculture and and polyculture and regenerative farming using the animals and the bacteria and the fungal uh, stuff that's underneath the ground and the uh, carbon-nitrogen ratios that we're looking for, um, it's a whole different world. I mean, the other stuff is just is just dirt, and this is soil. So this is soil. We got earthworms. We have a good smell. There's a lot of critters going on. Our, our ideal would be to emulate a forest floor. That's really difficult, takes an awful lot of work and finessing. Uh, and, you know, you need more shade, too, as the leaf litter falls down in the, in the, and then the fall rains come on it, and then the critters are underneath eating that, and you get all that forest humus and your local pH changes and all, you know, all the things that happen there. But, but if we had soil like that, then we wouldn't even need legumes because the soil would make its own nitrogen. Correct. So, yeah. Once you get the diversity great enough, then, uh, and you get enough free living nitrogen fixing, uh, organisms and you have a high enough organic matter, it, it is a self 
supplying system. It's a matter of, you know, we, we've taken many years to degrade it. It's going to take a few years to uh, regenerate it. So that's the for certain, yes. That that's the catch twenty two, and it's you know we need to be able to do that in a way that we can afford to get there too. So we have to produce economic results today, uh, and, and still be able to constantly move the needle. I, and I think you can do it um, both ways, right? So you can do a conventional approach where we're we're just extracting uh, dollar value today with really not much of an emphasis on soil improvement over time. It's soil sustainability is the, is the catchphrase, which I hate, but we won't go there. Um, the, but I think you can do that same thing and improve your soil to where, you know, five, ten years from now, you, you have a dramatically different resource that's uh, less weeds and less um, pests and able to need far less nutrient input to where eventually then you can get to um, a no input system over time other than uh, your shadow, right? The most important thing in yeah, the field. Yeah, 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 it's the shadow, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, my footprint, <laughs> somebody's footprint. Exactly. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, I mean, that other way, the monoculture way, you're not building anything. It's actually agribusiness, not agriculture. Agriculture died in probably in the early 50s, I guess, after World War II, and we ended up with the, uh, you know, all the chemicals and right. that approach, the DEPs forward to Roundup, et cetera. Hmm. Interesting. Agriculture versus agribusiness. That's uh, um that's a good way to say that. We had to get rid of uh, phosphate and ammonia stockpiles, and uh, and we've been uh, um, yeah, going ever that, since. So, yeah, yeah, for Peru and everybody else that had all the bird poop everywhere. So, I remember when I was a kid, we used to get fertilizer called Pacific Guano because it came from the bats or something. Right. Or I forget what it was. Yep. Some up, upwelling of the currents in Peru or something. So when you're talking about the diversity that you've got going on out there, and we you referred to early on about the seed separation, those kind of things on perennial, or excuse me, on annual crops, what is a typical? How many crops are you growing together at once and harvesting at once within a field, and then seed separating? You know, the most I've done is three, uh, and and it was a three F field. It was uh, a farro and flax and fava beans. And they're, you know, if you think about the size of those seeds, they're all different. So it's just simple separation, you know. But, I mean, typically all of my fields are polyculture. So we have like Lotus paniculatus, which is a birdswood trefoil growing as an understory. We sometimes have some other um, uh, medics, excuse me, and which are kind of low-growing, like alfalfas, metacagos, and and uh, also some clovers, and there are some low clovers, and then there's burr clover too. You know, just let them grow, and they're putting nitrogen in the ground, and uh, they're they're not in the way of our beans because the burr clover won't grow this time of year so well. So the beans get way ahead of it. And, you know, we've got picris and some other weeds in there, and a little bit of lotus in there with the beans, but. Um, you know, uh, beans and, and teff work really good because they're both so warm season. And so I've done that before very, very uh, effectively. Uh, and then when you cut the beans and you cut the teff at the same time, it's a way huge difference in seed size. So, right. You're not... And, you know, they're feeding the teff. Yeah, so the beans are feeding the teff and 
the calf is making deals with the roots underneath there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not not shooting for a wheat rye barley um, mixture and trying to separate that. That'd be a little little more no, challenging no, no. side. I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm gonna let somebody else with a little more engineering finesse than me to do that because that, that wheat barley rye thing is hard to separate. Yeah. It sounds like a good bourbon mash bill to me. <laughs> Oh, wait, can't be bourbon, didn't have any corn in it, but. (laughs) Basically, your your system, and I I think it's interesting, of how you're looking back to agriculture instead of the agribusiness approach. How how would other farmers, uh, what do you think are some key ingredients that other farmers who are maybe trapped, if you will, in the agribusiness approach to um, food production be able to transition over time into being an agriculturalist. I mean, looking at the land, looking at the plants, and and responding to what they need. What what's some of those uh, key ingredients? And I realize there's no silver bullets, but mindset there there is some um, keys that can be done. What do you, what do you see that to be? Yeah, I think it is an attitude, and I I think what you need to do is if I was a farmer trapped in that financial cycle, you know, having to produce and buying the fertilizer to make the stuff produce in dirt rather than soil, I would carve out a spot and just try the small prairie uh, setting and see what I could do. And, you know, uh, regenerative organics is is scalable. I, I had talked to people before and heard podcasts and YouTube videos of people that have two acres, four acres, eight acres, you know, I thought, well, what the hell are you going to do with that? You know, that's not scalable, but, uh, if that's the best you can do, you know, there's some eight acre fields over in Martha's Vineyard that some people are doing, and I'm sure there's a lot of horsepower or manpower into it to make it work. But then there's somebody in uh, Arkansas, I think it is, that has 1,800 or 18,000 acres, I forget. And, you know, he's running cattle and chickens and, and sheep, you know, different kinds of cattle and, and the entire process. And I don't know how much he's producing directly in the way of vegetables or you know csa stuff or what how it's working but but it is scalable to that acreage where it is all regenerative agriculture so you know you maybe you're producing uh meat uh in lieu of vegetables or seeds or you do a combination of all of those you know but i i don't know i haven't looked into his specifically to see how he has divided up but i do know that he has that many acres and it's uh, it is scalable so if that can happen with money anything can happen uh there's a young man in in i think it's maine right now farming he's part uh, indigenous and, and part black and and he's gone together with some people and doing some um, uh, property farming and they started with a very small farm, and now I want to say they're up to four, four or six hundred acres. But you know, uh, chickens and chicken flock and stuff like that, and and then you know, the other vegetables and things that they're growing in, in addition. So it can be done, uh, but it's it's not easy. It's an awful lot of work, and I just wish that you know the government. and in, in state, local, and and federal government would get behind us and try to help uh, people that are trying to sequester carbon and make the earth's skin a better place for us to exist because that changes the entire environment. Uh, the way we're going monoculturally 
is not sustainable and you see what's going on with the the uh, icebergs and everything else glaciers that are going to hell in a handbasket and water levels increasing and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said about uh, uh, he had the cosmos uh, I want to say about five years ago that we had 14 years and so before it's irreversible so that's what pushes me I, I want to see us stay here I'd like to see my children and grandson children have a planet, little blue marble to enjoy as much as I have. And it's not fair to them to have a halt to that just because we have made stupid decisions based on ego and money. Um, and this blue marble is going to exist without us. You know, we don't need to be here for it to be here, but it, maybe it's not going to be as green as it looks or as blue, but it'll sure as hell be here. So I'd like us to be here too. So. Uh, I, I would like to see the government get behind some of this kind of farming and and maybe have grants to show people that, yes, it is scalable. You know, we've got a lot of brains in, in the United States and in humankind per se. And, you know, I remember when Kennedy challenged us to get to the moon and we did. Uh, it wasn't that long. Um, so if the challenge is made... Uh, people in the United States and people in the world will rise to the challenge. But, you know, right now there's too many people just trying to put food in their table and make a living and, and do all that with a mask on. So it's not easy. Not easy. Well, I think one of the challenges... I don't have a silver Yeah, and I think one of the challenges is um, creating a level playing field. So I'm more of, if you give a person a choice, they're going to choose the right thing. Um, I think, right. uh, being an innovator, if I wait on the, if I wait on the government, uh, <laughs> it's kind of the last place that innovation uh, occurs, but if they could, uh, create a way that would level the playing field, because right, right now with, uh, direct payments, crop insurance, um, equip CSP, all the programs that exist throughout the USDA really exist to encourage and promote our current status quo in farming. And yes. if we could get it to at least where those uh, the incentives could be the same for regenerative and, you know, grazing animals and those kind of things to produce, you know, food essentially is, is the purpose of the program, produce food, sustain the soils. If those could equate across everything, then it'd be an easier choice for farmers to make between um, growing a, a, you know, an approved commodity crop or venturing out into something a little more on the wilder side like you're doing. And uh, I think that that policy change could could go a long way, but I don't know how we get there, even though there is a lot of brilliant minds, and I do agree with you. It's a matter of the of the will to make that happen. So Yeah, well, we just need to have more, yeah, more podcasts like this and more people aware of the problem because there's a lot of people that aren't aware. I mean, we are, but we're preaching to the choir right now, you and I. You just have to have a bigger audience. Right, right. And uh, the the other thing that happens, too, is that, um, you know, look, look, yes, the world's going to end in 14 years. It's been going to end in 14, 50, 60, you name it, for a long time. Um, one of the yeah. things I think that we um, underestimate is the power of agriculture and what we can do to contribute to that. If you look at when you're doing uh, perennial wheatgrass and the carbon that you're sequestering into the soil up to 30 feet deep with those roots, uh, 
If you run that math compared to what we're doing with annual crops on carbon sequestration, you know, that completely introduces agriculture is the biggest answer to carbon sink there is. And it's just a matter of management. I mean, we we can reverse it. I mean, plants are typically carbon deficient. You know, if we if we could just capture that carbon and store it in the soil and, and keep it in a uh, a localized uh, sphere of of the soil, you know, typically the the carbon dioxide content above the surface of the soil twenty inches is twice of the atmospheric carbon content in the morning. But then within two hours of sunup in a cornfield, for example, this research was done. But within two hours of sunup, Dr. Jerry Hatfield noticed it's one half of atmospheric carbon levels. So, you know, we have a mm-hmm. carbon deficiency in growing plants. Our problem is, is we've decided to put all the carbon into the upper atmosphere instead of keep it in the soil where it can be recycled into plants in the near surface atmosphere. So uh, just little changes can make these happen. But like you said, we're preaching to the choir, but the choir just needs to keep singing louder and louder, correct? so now i do have i do have to ask you about the fifth principle of soil health um and some friends of mine jokingly call it the fifth element um because i i push them all the time and um but the fifth element a fifth principle of integrating livestock how are you coming on that road uh at your own farm uh we're doing well we bought a, a herd of sheep not a very big herd uh hair sheep they're St. Croix from the uh, Virgin Islands, and I want to say they came to the United States from the slave trade on the slave ships. And so we're, we have some registered animals that were they're ready to have babies right now. We have uh, seven females and one uh, male, and uh, so in a few days we should have 22 because uh, the females should have twins each. So we're looking towards that, and uh, matter of fact, next Thursday, I'm meeting with someone in Paso Robles who's running a shepherd uh, operation for some Google entrepreneurs who have bought some land over there and trying to do something. And, and if we can incorporate our flocks, because the flock to me is a tractor. And so as I've told people, I need a bigger tractor. I mean, seven sheep is not going to do much. So, But if we had 80 sheep, now we would do something. And we could get in a field, get it eaten, and get out of there because we have to move them in less than seven days or in less than 10 days. But we try to move them in less than seven uh, for parasite reasons. And uh, and we also have some pigs. We have some milk. And, and they're ready to have babies, too. They're mealfoot hogs, which are rare and endangered from the the, uh, the south and uh, south of the United States. And I, I don't know where they emanated from originally, but... They're really interesting because they have a, a mule foot. They, they don't have open toes. And, and our male is 600 pounds right now, and the female is 400, and she's about ready to have give birth. So we're we're getting there, uh, and I'd like to run chickens. And we uh, were working on a farm the other day that has a free-range chicken set up, so we're using some of the same kind of a, a premier uh, electric wire and, and uh, fencing to keep chickens in as we use for the sheep and uh, so you know i i can see us running chickens after the animals and then they would eat some of the parasites that are hatching and stuff so uh, there's a way of you know making that health entirely 
a better kind of doing what Joel Salatin and some of the other people are doing in in the East. And so, yeah, we're going, and to me, it's just as simple as saying, okay, what, how big of a tractor do you need? Well, the size of the tractor, in this case, it's sheep, is dependent upon how much feed I have for them because we're sure as hell not going to move them off the farm. So they, they need to stay circling round and round. And so when I finish my grain crops, there's stubble, there's some grain there, they can eat all that. Uh, when, when you, um, finish the beans and stuff, there's stubble there and, you know, the other picris and the other things and sheep love picris and picris is my nemesis that, that, uh, prickly ox tongue is what it's called. So it sticks to your pants, but that's the first thing they'll go after. They love that thing in the daisy family. Mm. So, you know, you, you need to learn what, what they need to eat. And then, then you have to size your herd and then, then, then find the markets to sell the, the meat that's from a regenerative organic farm. And I, we had restaurants in LA that were willing and able to do that. But at this point, you know, a lot of those have really been hit hard. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. I know people are still eating meat and to eat uh, meat from a regeneratively um, uh, pastured uh, flock would be phenomenal. So, you know, we're, we're doing what we can. It's just, factor size, getting everything sized and making it work and then turn the key and go. So, but it, it's, you know, it's taking some, some work right now. We're doing way too much work. It's too much hobby farming and it sounds romantic and all that, but it's an awful lot of work and the same amount of work you could do 10 times the number of animals. So, um, I, know, I it, agree with it, you hundred percent. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's really a good source because then you know we get them, like we could put them on a on a grain crop that is just a young grain crop, and they would eat it down, and then there would stool out more and produce more, and their saliva triggers the plant to even branch and do more, and then their urine and their feces are of course are helping all the time. So, like I was talking about the purple needle grass field, uh, that one has been in uh, twenty years. And uh, ideally, I would like to harvest it and get the top off and then put the sheep in and then come back and plant millets in between, which is a C4 crop, a uh, warm season crop and a cool season crop. And then I can get two crops in the same field that are both grasses that don't even compete with each other. One is sleeping and the roots are, you know, still alive, but uh, kind of sleeping and, and helping each other out and out of each other's way. But we need we need that input of the animals for the fertility. So that's where that all comes in is that fertility for our carbon nitrogen ratios and our the biological ratios, the bacteria and the fungal ratios. So and the bacteria and fungus produce more if they've got something to produce on, and that's the manure and the all the stuff that's decomposing. Well, it's it's amazing the work that you're doing, the understandings that you have, and it feels good that you've got everything moving in the right direction now after after trying a lot of different things over time. And I'm glad you're able to you know spend some time with us today and and, and share your story and what you looked at and where you, where you've been and 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 where you're heading. What is the next uh, What does the next five years look like for your farm? Well, I hope we're going to be able to open it up to tours to, to educate young farmers. And we're trying to you know, get some grants to bring uh, an, 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 uh, not dangerous felons uh, from the prison systems out here to do some work and, and to do some work study things with the colleges and, you know, train people. Um, 
we're, I am going to be working with Cal Poly on their grain program. Uh, some of the professors have asked me to help them figure out how to plant and, and harvest and make bread in the same year. And so we're looking towards that end. So I think by November, we'll be working on some Sonora wheat or something over there on their experimental garden. Uh, so I want to reach out with the educators and, you know, see where we go uh, and see what we can do to turn this into a, a, a teaching farm where people can actually come out here and see because we have such a diversity. I mean, even even growing rice is indoors because it's so cool. Uh, and we, we will have rice seed for sale this year to uh, have people in the warmer climates uh, like Los Angeles grow rice in their backyard. These are inland rices, so they don't eat patties. And, you know, you could grow just like your tomatoes and zucchini and have rice there and then grow your own rice and it doesn't have any arsenic in it. Uh, like the one in the patty. And and the, the pad, patty rice has arsenic because of the situation, not because of the farmer. Mm-hmm. So there's many very good organic farmers that uh, rice with arsenic in it because it's the patty. So, um, so you know, we're, we're, I, I see a lot of education. I see a lot of movement in teaching people to do a backyard prairie-type garden and grow a lot of their own food. I don't know what that's going to do to conventional agriculture. Um, I hope it's going to make it want to change over and be part of the system rather than in opposition to it. Um, I don't know. Time will tell. But for me, I'm going to do my part. And it's like eating an elephant. We do a bite at a time. For sure. Well, Larry, I can't. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. You know, we have such a heart and passion for educating and not that we're the keeper of all the knowledge, but this constant learning from one another, learning as we do, willing to try things. And then you said, uh, step back and see what happens. And that attitude of being willing to share what you've learned Uh, good and bad, and being able to articulate that to others and share that information, I think is the thing that's going to move this needle forward. And hopefully the choir takes some good deep breaths and and, uh, really sings loud. So so thanks again for joining us. And uh, we really, really appreciate having you here today. Oh, it's been my distinct pleasure. And you know, the the one key word you said is attitude and attitude. Uh, attitude always determines our altitude. So, you know, if we have a good attitude, we're going to fly high. For sure. So for let's sure. all do it together. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so very much. Paul. You bet. You thank bet. you, Larry. Wow. So many great takeaways in today's conversation. Being an observer of the fields you walk. Remember Monty said the most important thing in your field is your shadow? We've got to be in the fields observing, seeing, listening, and smelling what's happening with the plants and the soil. We encourage you to grab your shovel and plant your shadow in the field and become a student of what's happening in the soil below your feet. Thanks for joining us.